Hi, welcome to the New Bazaar. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Coming up on today's show... If you think about trade policy as essentially the intersection of domestic economic policy and foreign economic policy, then as your domestic economic policy objectives and priorities change, it would make sense for your trade policy to change. Sumeya Keynes on the new order of trade. The usual argument for why countries should be open to trading with each other, to trading goods and services with each other, has always been pretty simple. Free trade is good for economic growth. It's good for economic efficiency and innovation. Businesses get access to more customers around the world that they can sell their stuff to. And all of us get to buy a wider variety of goods and services that are made abroad. It all sounds pretty great. And for the longest time, especially in the time since World War II, that logic was widely accepted. Countries lowered barriers to trading with each other, they forged closer ties with each other, and global trade boomed. But something fundamental has changed in the last five or ten years, and which has led to a partial reversal with trade barriers going back up. Policymakers are now using trade policy to pursue other goals besides just economic growth, national security goals and goals related to the environment and human rights. And sometimes countries are using trade policy to fight non-trade disputes with each other. That is the thesis of today's guest, the journalist Samea Keynes. Samea has just finished a massive 9,000-word report for The Economist magazine about this recent shift and how it ties into the events of the past few years. Things like the rise of populism and the growing tensions between the U.S. and China. And most recently, the thing that's been on everybody's mind, the clogging of global supply chains, which has led to shortages of things like semiconductors and cars and some household goods and some other stuff, too. Samea is a great journalist, in my opinion. She not only writes for The Economist, she's also the co-host of Trade Talks, a podcast that's all about trade and one of my favorite economics podcasts on any topic. And as you'll hear, she is especially good at explaining all the complicated trade-offs that countries face when they're trying to balance all these different goals in their trade policy, especially because some of those goals can be directly opposed to each other. So we get into all that and much, much more in this really great chat. Here it is. Savannah Keynes, welcome to the new bazaar. Thanks so much for having me. I, I'm holding your article in my hand here in oh, print, God. old school, all right, which I think is kind of appropriate since the piece is about how trade used to work, right? Like kind of trade in a bygone era. And I'm holding your big magazine report in print. Fun fact, The Economist, I'm not sure how we're classified now, but for a while in the national accounts or something, we were classified as a manufacturing business. Um, because we because we physically manufactured the magazine, <laughs> which obviously to everyone, you know, to all the highfalutin intellectuals felt um, <laughs> kind of funny. But yeah, I don't know how we're classified now. But at some point in the relatively recent past, we were definitely a manufacturing company. There's still a problem with how The Economist categorizes itself because you refer to yourselves as a newspaper instead of what you so clearly are, which is a magazine with glossy pages that comes out once a week. You are not the Financial Times or the New York Times and so on. Those are newspapers. The Economist is a magazine, but you call yourselves a newspaper. If you say it enough times, then it becomes <laughs> true. 
That's, okay. that's the philosophy. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Well, let's get into your report because I got to say, you arrive at a conclusion that was seemingly kind of depressing, which is that the new order of trade policy is one of, and, and I'm quoting you here, more intimidation, discrimination, and ultimately isolation. But you're not saying that global trade has been eviscerated or that it's going to disappear anytime soon. There's obviously still a ton of trade happening. It's just that there has been this growing skepticism of trade over the last couple of decades, a kind of skepticism of how interconnected countries have become. And that skepticism has now led to actual changes in trade policy, especially in the last five or 10 years. There are actual policymakers who have started to undo the earlier gains from that previous era when trade barriers were falling and falling and falling. Well, now some barriers to trade have been put back up. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, you know, having just written the the 9,000 word opus, now that I'm free to kind of add all the other 9,000 words of nuance um, <laughs> uh, to that. The outtakes, I guess the, thing, the cutting room floor. The yeah. outtakes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one point I would emphasize is that not all of it is bad. It's very oversimplified to say, more trade good, less trade bad, right? I mean, some of the the change in focus of trade policy is because of evolving objectives, right? It's it's good that we are thinking about the planet, right? If you think about trade policy as essentially the intersection of domestic economic policy and foreign economic policy, then as your domestic economic policy objectives and priorities change, it would make sense for your trade policy to change, right? Your trade policy is about the reconciliation of those those two goals. And, you know, when they conflict, it's difficult. <laughs> Let's take a step back for a second, because you actually start your report with a kind of survey of all the evidence of the effects of trade before this kind of backlash started over the last decade or two. And what's interesting about it is that if you look at the evidence for whether or not trade actually did lead to faster economic growth, higher living standards, the evidence is actually pretty compelling. In other words, trade seemed to have been doing what its advocates had always wanted it to do. So why don't we start there? Uh, Take us through sort of what the evidence shows and what the effects of trade were in, let's say, all the decades after World War II and into the 90s and in part of the 2000s. Yeah, I mean, with the caveat that that kind of really specific causal evidence is very hard to pin down, there are a couple of studies showing that, yes, when you have trade liberalization, um, higher growth tends to follow. So there's one um, that looks at episodes of trade liberalization by poorer countries that looks at episodes where they they cut their trade barriers and that finds that that tends to lead to an extra 10 to 20 percent growth over a decade. That is a lot for for poorer countries. There's another study that the World Bank does that finds that a 1% increase in participation in in global value chains, global supply chains, that is linked with an increase in income per person um, of more than 1% in the long run. Again, if you're poor, that that kind of increase is meaningful. Okay. And the reason I wanted to talk about that was just to make the point that the backlash to trade has not really been about the failure of trade to do what its advocates mainly said it would do. It really did achieve those things that they that they promised. 
The backlash is about other things. It's partly about the usefulness of trade policy for achieving other political goals, and it's about other effects of trade. And one of the things that you write about in your piece is that for a long time, there has also been a kind of rules-based approach to trade, where countries would agree on rules so that they would not skew their own trade policies in ways that would benefit only them and hurt the other countries that they were trading with. And you write about this in the context of the WTO, the World Trade Organization. And here I want to I set things up really quickly for our listeners because this is, this is really important. The WTO has been around since the mid-1990s, and basically it provided a rule book that countries who were in the WTO would agree to follow. And its role, its main role, or one of its roles, was to act as kind of an arbiter of disputes that would come up between countries. And so the WTO has this appellate body of people that are like judges, essentially, that would settle these disputes between countries when they would arise. And what the Trump administration did was that it effectively blocked the appointment of new members to this appellate body so that new trade disputes could not be settled. And this represented a step away from that rules-based approach to trade and towards a world where each country would be making its own unilateral decisions about trade and about how to retaliate when one country perceives that another country has been screwing it over. And so the risk, Samea, seems to be that this would begin to threaten the trading system itself, which is built on these rules that countries initially agreed to. Is that right? Yeah. I think when you don't have a rules-based system with this independent arbiter, the risk is that essentially trade disputes descend into accusations of bullying. You don't have the same legitimacy of that system with the independent arbiters. Yeah. And nothing stops the retaliation cycle, right? Like I lift my tariffs and then some other country lifts their tariffs. So I respond and I lift mine again. It just sort of it never ends or it feels yeah. like it never ends and there's nothing to stop it, right? Yeah. If, you're, if you feel like you're being bullied, you're going to punch back, right? And then they're going to punch right. again, right? And so it's that kind of punch battle that you're trying to avoid. What's fascinating to me and what I learned in your piece was that actually, you know, the Biden administration hasn't been much better in terms of, you know, sort of encouraging this rules-based system via the World Trade Organization than the Trump administration. You know, the Trump administration had been blocking the appointment of people who were supposed to be on the WTO who would settle these disputes. And it was thought that maybe after Trump left that potentially Biden would be better about this, that he would allow the appointment of these arbiters at the WTO. What I learned from your piece was that actually the Biden administration hasn't really moved on that at all. Like it, it seems like the sort of um, the sort of damage to the way the WTO functions and therefore the rules-based system has just kind of stayed in place, at least so far. I acknowledge that it's early on. Um, but I was, I, was, I was quite surprised by it. I'm kind of curious to know if you were surprised by that too. I wasn't actually that surprised by it, to be honest. I mean, oh. yeah, because the reason that the Trump administration broke the WTO's appellate body, it wasn't Trump coming in and just smashing everything up. There is a very strong, large group of American trade lawyers in Washington, D.C., who are very, very angry at the various decisions that the WTO's appellate body has made in the past, right? There's, there's a sense that the way that 
those independent arbiters made their decisions were somehow biased against the U.S. It, it went against the commitments that the U.S. actually made. Um, there's a perception that in the way that they made their judgments, they ended up making up obligations, making up new obligations that the U.S. would have to stick to, things that they never signed up to. So those feelings predate the Trump administration. And when you speak to American trade officials, there's a sense that these problems are deep, right? They relate to the way that the WTO works. They relate to this balance of obligations and you know, rights and responsibilities that the U.S. and other countries have at the WTO. So the only way that they're going to fix that, the only way that they're going to bring back dispute settlement is if the, the WTO starts essentially enforcing rules that the U.S. actually thinks it signed up to or it wants to abide by. Now, I should also say that if the U.S. perceives a problem in the rules, for every problem that the U.S. perceives, another country would perceive the fix as a problem, right? There are various decisions that the U.S. doesn't like that other countries do like. And so fixing those is really, really, really difficult, which is why I, I think this thing is going to be broken for a while. For some time, yeah. You wrote in your piece that the Trump administration saw its role in terms of trade as accomplishing two things. The first was the use of trade policy for what traditionally would have considered non-trade goals like national security. And this actually came from uh, the Trump administration's top trade official with whom you spoke, a guy named Robert Lighthizer. Um, what exactly does that mean, trade policy for non-trade goals? So trade policy for trade goals, I suppose, is just very narrowly you are liberalizing trade, so you increase trade, right? You give companies more opportunities to organize their supply chains however they want. So trade policy for non-trade goals includes things like using trade policy to protect your national security base. You might not think that economic integration is entirely compatible with your own national security interests. How, how, would, that, how would that happen? Yeah. Yeah. What, what if production of a, an input, some kind of special metal that your military is very, very reliant on, what if you suddenly discover, hang on, all of that is being produced in, in China, say, right? Maybe, maybe the U.S. is just very, very reliant on China. And so you worry if things ever got a bit tense that China might abuse its importance in, in that supply chain. It'll stop selling you the, the metal that you need. By the way, that's not really a hypothetical, is it? Like there's this thing called rare earths, which the U.S. uses in all kinds of electronic equipment and things like that, including military equipment. And China makes, I think, the majority of that in the whole world. And the U.S. doesn't really have the capacity to make much of it. So that's not actually a hypothetical. This was something that like the Trump administration and the Biden administration have both looked into. Yeah, everyone's very freaked out about rare earths. It's a long-term concern that you have such a high concentration of production of, of some of these things. Some of these are called rare earths, not actually that rare. But it is the case that making these things um, can be incredibly environmentally destructive. Um, maybe that's one reason why it's it's pretty difficult to just say, okay, well, let's extract them at home. Some of them are legitimately rare. Yeah. And so trade policy for non-trade goals means like protecting some items that, you know, you might need for national security reasons. But it also sometimes seems to involve like damaging another country's ability to do something. I mean, at one point, the U.S. started restricting 
the export of certain semiconductor technology to China, which China needed to use for all kinds of things. And that is still, you know, that is still a source of like deep contention between the two countries, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of a sense that in the past, geopolitical battles and economic battles were really meant to be in separate lanes. And, you know, the US has had restrictions on sales of particular sensitive technologies that could be used by the Chinese military or whatever. Those those are not new at all. But what does seem to be newer is this much murkier sense that China's superiority in some technological sectors could at some point pose a risk to America's dominance. And so it's that kind of less direct link between economic integration, selling selling this technology to, to Chinese companies, um, and America's national security interests. That's that's the link that's becoming um, more important. Yeah. And we, by the way, we backed right into the second goal of the Trump administration in terms of trade policy, which is that China uh, should be seen, I think, according to the Trump administration as a geopolitical adversary and that trade policy can be part of sort of countering, you know, Chinese attempts to, you know, to sort of, I don't know, wrong foot the U.S. uh, in the geopolitical sphere. And That is something that actually has, I think, quite a bit of bipartisan support in the U.S. It also has support from allies around the world, and it seems to have intensified uh, this support for either isolating or at least countering China on a number of things in the last couple of years, partly because of COVID and because there's been quite a rise in uh, sentiment against the Chinese government in the last couple of years. So uh, can you just give us a sense of like, the consensus on using trade to counter China, not just in the U.S., but around the world. I mean, as you were putting this report together, what did you sort of uh, what did you sort of learn? I learned that the concern about dependence on China, the concern about China weaponizing its economic heft, uh, is widespread, and partly that's because of China's behavior towards particular countries. Uh, there was this example of of China essentially threatening certain Australian exports after the Australian government called for an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19, did various other things that the Chinese government wasn't happy with. And oh, all of a sudden, um, Australian exports of coal or wine or, or various other things were were facing barriers. And so, you know, I spoke to one representative of, of working with Australian businesses who was talking about how you know, they were getting more and more briefings from the Australian government. I think there's a sense that the government is being more active about saying to the business community, look, this is a problem. Australia is in a very difficult position because it's small. It's very, very near China, which is very, very big. And so if you're a company, it's very, very difficult to ignore the massive, massive market on your doorstep, right? And so you do need a sort of strong message from the government to sort of explain why actually maybe you should be considering um, other markets. And that Australian example is one that was was given to me again and again by officials in, in other countries as this example of how China isn't reliable. And what's, what's really interesting is that, I mean, China has done stuff like this before. As you mentioned, there was the rare earths example where it restricted exports of rare earths after there was an altercation with Japan. There was an incident about with salmon exports after a Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to someone they didn't like. 
China has form in this area, but in the context of everything else going on, the concern has become much more heightened. And so you've got worries in the EU, um, the UK. There's also a sense that with COVID, you know, China closed first when the pandemic hit, right? And so all of a sudden, companies were faced with their suppliers telling them like, oops, this input all comes from China, right? And there's a sense from policymakers that, well, hang on, like, why why was everyone caught out by this? This is maybe a problem that, that we have to fix. In the context of those other, you know, concerns that China could weaponize its its dominance, it's just all mixed up in this this stew of suspicion and, and worry. Yeah, and I keep bringing up China because it really does seem like so much of the trade backlash of the past few years is driven by the world's relationship with China and by worries that the stance of the Chinese government on things like human rights and freedom of speech and surveillance and political oppression, uh, that their stance is in such a deep tension with how the liberal democracies of the world do things and that you can't really avoid having that tension spill over into trade issues because of how much business the rest of the world does with China. And the backlash, I think, is driven in particular by the idea that China and the U.S. now see themselves as adversaries or at least as competitors uh, and not at all as collaborators in the global trading system acting for mutual benefits. And originally, I mean, decades ago, the idea, the hope was that by integrating China more and more into the global trading system, that that might lead over time to China becoming a less authoritarian country, that maybe it would adopt some of the values of the democracies that it trades with, or at least that it would allow for markets to function a little bit more freely inside of China rather than the government having control over everything. And that just seems not to be the case, not even close. And in fact, Sometimes it seems to go the other way, where other countries, or at least other businesses in other countries, end up changing their values so that they don't risk upsetting the Chinese government and losing access to the Chinese market. I mean, the most obvious example here is how American-made movies have tailored some of their scripts so as not to offend the Chinese government because the movie studios don't want to get shut out of showing their movies inside of China. But then, I don't know if you saw this, but there was also the example of what happened to a basketball executive, a guy named Daryl Morey, who tweeted something like, we stand with Hong Kong during a time when China was cracking down harshly on uh, the protesters in Hong Kong. And, you know, basketball players in the U.S. and and other people in the in the basketball community and the National Basketball Association ended up get, getting mad at him for it, at Daryl Morey. Because China is such a huge basketball market. And so my point is that you end up having parts of the American economy self-censoring and in a way going against the basic values of speech and tolerance and liberalism instead of those values catching hold in the Chinese political system. Anyways, I've been going on for a while here. I don't even have a question. I'm just kind of curious to get your thoughts on all that. Yeah, I think this really gets to the heart of a very deep problem in the way that the Chinese economy interacts with the global trading system. So you just mentioned a problem is that these companies are just 
you know, the Chinese market is just this massive magnet, right? It's really, really difficult to say, you know what, I, I'm not okay with these constraints on our freedoms. I'm going to leave the Chinese market and go elsewhere, right? It's just too enticing. So what you end up getting is companies trying to tap the Chinese market because it's so lucrative and being very, very reluctant to complain when something goes wrong. If you think about the rules-based system, right, you think that there are rules and China has made commitments about how it treats companies, right, limits on how much they discriminate against foreign companies. If you're another government, you need to know when China is not living up to those commitments, right? But how can you know if companies are too afraid to call them out, if companies are too afraid of losing their access to the Chinese market, right? You, it's just very, very difficult to enforce rules if you just don't have the information on whether the rules are being stuck to. And this is how it works. Governments rely on companies to tell them when the rules are and aren't being met, right? And so that really, I think, does get to this this problem, right, which is that the way that China breaks the rules, it's not about having a bunch of laws on its books that another country can see and say, aha, those are inconsistent with your commitments. It's much, much murkier. It's much, much more difficult to kind of compare with the rules that are written down and identify rule breaking. And and that wouldn't be a problem if China was just tiny, right? Because companies wouldn't care. They'd be like, hey, they're being annoying. Go sort of out. Um, and it would just be much, much more straightforward. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to turn now to supply chains. And that is very much sort of the topic of the moment. You know, to give our, our listeners a bit of a background around this, a lot of countries have become increasingly worried that in times of stress, like during a pandemic or maybe during you know a recession or something of that nature, that if they are too reliant on these very complicated supply chains to import the products that they need in a given moment, that they will be sort of left without, that they won't have the ability to access the goods that they need because they don't have any way of making these things domestically. And so what's happened is that there's been increasing pressure, certainly in the U.S., but in a lot of other places as well, to start developing essentially domestic supply chains so that the U.S. is not as reliant on other countries and on global supply chains to access the stuff it needs when the stressful times come. So this tends to be uh, in things like semiconductors, pharmaceutical products, rare earths, as we already mentioned, and electric vehicles. These were all items that you listed in your report, Samea. Um, And I guess my first question is, like, how do you start actually undoing this incredibly complicated tangle of, you know, connections that have that have sort of sprung up throughout the world, these complicated networks, because it seems too easy. It seems like too neat too pat a solution to say, well, we'll just make everything in-house when there's a reason that these very complicated networks around the world sprung up in the first place, which is that some of this stuff is hard to make. You need the stuff that comes from everywhere. So like Take us through what countries are thinking in terms of supply chains and whether or not it's actually realistic that they can bring back to their shores the entire process of making some of these goods. Okay, so the short answer to the second part is obviously it's not realistic for autarky terrain <laughs> uh, in the U.S. Um, but just just going 
through the question of what governments can do about it, what they, what they have been doing about it in some cases. So in the report I mention, I think it's facts, friends and fortification. So the first thing that everyone did when the pandemic struck is say, okay, we don't know anything. We are flying blind here. For personal protective equipment, the government didn't know how the supply chain worked. It didn't know, you know, who made the stuff exactly, what the stockpiles were in terms of, you know, within private industry. It, it just didn't know. And so step one is kind of work out, okay, well, what do we know? The complexity of these supply chains can hide vulnerabilities earlier on in the supply chain, right? So so maybe let's think of TVs or something, a crucial item for national security. What if you're <laughs> importing your TVs from... Vietnam, China, Mexico, eight, eight or nine different places. It looks like you're very diversified. But what if all the components going into the TVs are made in one place, right? So it's that sort of dependence that you might worry about and that sort of dependence that the, the traditional trade data just won't tell you about. And so that kind of warranted a, a deeper look into, into supply chains. And, and the problem is obviously that companies – this is commercially sensitive information. They're not that thrilled about just handing it over. Um, so that, that fact-finding is pretty tricky. So so this is the facts. Yes. Facts, friends, and fortification. What you just described is facts, which is that, for one thing, countries actually don't know a lot themselves, the governments of countries, about how these supply chains work. They're trying to figure that out first before they can work out like exactly what to do about bringing supply chains home, if that's the route they end up taking. So uh, so that's facts, correct? And then there's friends is the second one? Then there's friends. So that's things like forging alliances, um, trying to match investors with people who want to extract rare earths, right? So you kind of, you have collaborations, perhaps you have some state funding in one country and some resources in another country and you kind of match those together, you have an alliance. You um, mean friends and alliances between countries. In other yes. words, like the U.S. being friends with Japan and Australia or you know, parts of Europe or whatever to sort of uh, to work out like how they can come to an agreement beforehand about sourcing something when they need it so that if Japan and the U.S. are starting to make their own rare earths, they agree essentially to share those rare earths in times of trouble. Is that is that more or less how this works? More or less, yeah. I don't mean brunch. Uh, I mean, yes, alliances <laughs> between between different um, governments. Um, but, so then but that just sounds like trade to me. <laughs> that sounds like trade to well, me. Like that sounds yeah, like. Yeah, I mean, I guess know, it's uh, it's um, intentional trade, right? So it's, who do you trade with? Who do you have sectoral agreements with? Right? Who do you choose to try to negotiate a digital trade deal with? And really, you're just you know, in some senses, the vaguer it is, the more you're just trying to send a signal that like, look, this is where you want to put your supply chains because we're not going to fight each other and in emergency. And then the the more hardcore, you know, real impact could come from funding or preferential trade barriers, things that are financial incentives for companies to organize their supply chains between allies. So the final one is, as you mentioned, domestic policy, right? Fortification, trying to make sure that you have more domestic capacity to make certain products. And so we're seeing great interest in support for the semiconductor manufacturing 
capacity um, outside of the very, very few places where the high-end chips are made. There are other examples. I mean, the, the European Commission has this special thing called Projects of Special Interest, Special European Interest. I think I butchered that, but something like that, um, where there's basically kind of centralized pots of money going into to supporting production, and that's gone to things like um, batteries. Again, rare earths is another one. You obviously have the vaccine drive where everyone is just pumping money into their own vaccine production because, you know, at the beginning when vaccines were in short supply, the message was very strongly don't rely on the U.S. for supplies because the U.S. is going to supply its own population first. So that's what they're trying to do. I think the the first two, it's kind of hard to see how much could go wrong. I mean, facts are good. Um, I like facts because I'm a nerd. Um, so <laughs> that's great. <laughs> You've um, come to the right place. Yes. I think the, the fortification strand of this probably carries the most risk. Oh, how so? Um, because the risk is that everyone is is concerned about what China's doing, right? So China essentially has this this funny model where the government and the, the private sector are very, very connected. And so you end up with the public sector supporting industries they end up producing a lot when prices crash. Rather than cutting production, they essentially just export their surplus around the world, and that is painful for industries elsewhere who don't have the government supporting them. So the concern is that as other governments follow this, essentially, and take a more active role in supporting the private sector, what happens if, say, everyone invests in semiconductors, there's a glut of chips, and no one wants their semiconductor to be the one to fold, right? Do you end up then just getting trade disputes where you're saying, well, no, your your semiconductors are made with unfair subsidies. Ours are fine. We're going to put tariffs on you, right? Do you get those kinds of trade tensions further along down the line? To avoid those, you really need that friend part of it is really, really important. You need to make sure that you don't end up with the EU and the US fighting each other because they've each subsidized the same thing. Um, and there is precedent for that. So we had this big, big, long-running trade dispute over subsidies towards Airbus and Boeing, these two plane manufacturers. So imagine if that kind of really annoying, tedious, expensive dispute um, spilled over onto other areas. I say that as yeah, that one lasted. to write about that dispute <laughs> so many times. <laughs> Because that one lasted for like 15 years or something insane like that. Yeah, I remember. Um, so uh, that's one interesting potential um, potential drawback, which is that you get into like these disputes over who's unfairly subsidizing, you know, the same exact product in a bunch of different places. It seems like there is one other potential problem with this idea of bringing back to domestic shores the entire supply chain for some of these products, which is that domestic supply chains can break down also. And if you try to get to the point, if you're the U.S., say, where you're making everything that you need onshore and so you therefore don't have the kind of global trading relationship to at least strike a deal when times are bad, well, what happens if your domestic supply chain breaks down all of a sudden, right? Like it seems like that would be actually, you know, potentially an even more fragile situation to be in than one where you have a very dense network of trading relationships so that if one part of the network breaks down, you can try to kind of reroute it some other way through some other country. And I I don't quite understand why that idea doesn't get as much attention. So you mentioned facts, friends, and fortica- fortification. 
To which I respond, what about fragility? Like, what about putting all your eggs in one basket and it's at home and then you have no global trading relationships to lean on if your own supply chain breaks down, you know? So I think the the retort to that would be that the friends part of this is very important, right? So if you are worried about, you know, the, the concern is not that all trade is bad. The concern is that being very, very reliant on one potentially hostile supplier is not great, right? And the alternative to that is not let's bring everything home. Um, the alternative to that is saying, okay, well, what can we do to ensure that there's more diversification? And so, again, that, that friend's bit of the, the equation becomes important. So if you talk to the kind of trade nerds in the European Commission, they'll say, you know, despite some of the more French instincts um, within the EU, actually, they, they don't want to bring everything home. That's ridiculous. But what they do want is is to have options, right? If something goes wrong, have options. And you're just as vulnerable if you're reliant on one foreign supplier as if you're reliant only on domestic production. Things can definitely go wrong in both. Yeah. It's just that what's interesting about all this is that you've emphasized the importance of the friends part of this response, which to me just, again, sounds like, you know, reaping the benefits of trade by another name, maybe more intentionally, as you said, and in a way that's very deliberate and that's designed beforehand rather than just letting sort of the global market figure it out. Uh, But it still shows the necessity of having these, these relationships. And so the sort of simplistic complaint of, We've, we're too reliant on trade, like we got to bring some of this stuff home. That's just not realistic when you look at the way that the world actually works and, and that you look at what would actually be beneficial. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I think what I'm trying to do here is certainly not disagree with you, but it's just to show that there's all these simple messages that are out there about trade and about how to deal with it. And when you actually look at what the world looks like, when you actually look at how the world works, um, it's not so simple. And having good policy means understanding that rather than just responding to what I I think has been a kind of populist instinct of the last five or maybe 10 years of, we got to stop this. It's gone too fast. It's gone too far. We have to unwind it. Well, unwinding it can hurt just like letting it go too far can hurt some people. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, to go back slightly on what I said, just to now to give the the darker side of, of the reliance on friends. So if you are trying to rely on your friends, you are necessarily discriminating against your enemies. And traditionally, you know, discrimination uh, means treating some companies worse than other companies. That can have bad effects, right? It can be arbitrary. It can accidentally, you can end up protecting your own companies or or even your friends' companies from what would be healthy competition. And so, I, you know, I think the, the danger is that although you might start out with a perfectly legitimate quest to reduce the fragility of global trade, right, to reduce the, the geographic concentration of some production globally, what you could end up doing is essentially just introducing a bunch of arbitrary, discriminatory trade barriers that are just a pain in the neck for everyone to deal with, lead to higher prices, and don't really serve your ultimate objectives, which is some kind of murky national security, we don't really know, but sort of worrying thing. Yeah. 
Let's talk about a couple of areas that I think people may not associate with trade very much, but which uh, actually have a lot to do with trade, uh, human rights and the environment. Let's start with the first one. Human rights, uh, broadly defined, what are the sort of main concerns of policymakers when they're designing trade policy and they want to do something about protecting human rights? Yeah, so the things that the things that typically go into trade deals relating to human rights are um, they typically ban child labor. There are provisions related to the right to organize. There are provisions saying that governments have to enforce their domestic labor laws. Yeah, just to specify, sorry to cut you off, but just to specify, when you say labor protections and protections on like child labor, you mean that if the U.S., for example, is importing something from a, another country, that the goods that the U.S. is importing were not made by, say, child laborers, that they were made by workers who have the right to organize, the right to labor unions, things of that nature, right? That the goods that we bring into the country were made in such a way that like we can be proud of and, and made in such a way that protects the human rights of the workers in the other countries specifically. Yeah, and, and what trade negotiators in richer countries are trying to do as they negotiate those provisions is avoid what they call a race to the bottom, right? They don't want their domestic workers to be competing against foreign workers who are working in unacceptable conditions. And so this, this human rights question is slightly distinct from the, or it's a subset of the broader range of labor issues, labor standards, because historically there's been lots of concern in rich countries about workers competing against foreign workers who are paid very, very low wages, right? Um, so the human rights question is slightly distinct from that, although obviously if you have the right to organize into a labor union, then one would expect that you would be able to negotiate higher wages, but the way that that's framed is, is as a human right, like a fundamental human right as specified by the International Labor Organization. Yeah, here's something I learned from your report, which is that actually the U.S. in recent years in particular has actually been doing stuff to enforce human rights protections. The Customs and Border Protection specifically uh, has been stopping the importation of certain goods that were made with forced labor increasingly. And I, I just had not known that that was going on. Is that a trend that we can expect to continue or, or even to develop into, into new policies and laws? Yeah. So this is the result of actually an Obama administration change in U.S. law. So there has been a law on the books for decades and decades saying that the U.S. wasn't allowed to import products made with forced labor. But there was a massive, massive loophole that was that was written into that that basically meant that it didn't make any difference. Um, and so under the Obama administration, they essentially scrapped that loophole. And so now Customs Border Protection is enforcing that tightened up law. And so you're just seeing this really extreme increase in the number of cases as, you know, it was just the difference between this, this law doesn't really function and now it's a thing. So that's happening. I mean, there's a legal change, but then there's also a change elsewhere, right? So at the same time, um, there is this issue of forced labor um, in Xinjiang, the Uyghur population being treated really horrendously by the Chinese Communist Party. There are forced labor camps. Sometimes they are moved to other areas of the country. It's very, very difficult to tell 
whether they're there of their own free will or not. And essentially, they are those those workers appear to be quite connected to certain international supply chains. Um, and so some of the increasing enforcement is as a response to that. Yeah. And what's uh, also important to recognize here is that this is an instance where you said that sometimes doing something that can slow down trade isn't necessarily like a bad thing because this this goal of enforcing human rights is a little bit in tension with the goals on supply chains, as you pointed out in the piece, because, of course, the more you do to enforce uh, human rights or the more you do to pursue environmental goals, for example, you do make it a little bit more expensive for these products to be made and to be imported. And so you do pay a little bit more for these goods, but at the same time, you're pursuing a different goal and one that I think, you know, we would all agree is societally above the goal of like fast economic growth or whatever, right? Like this is a higher priority societally to have human rights and to enforce them and to make sure that that people aren't being brutalized. And so it's important to recognize the trade-off and also to recognize that the trade-off is not necessarily a bad thing. That's what I took. That's what I took from from that section of your report. Was that the right way to characterize it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it's worth saying that historically this debate has been about whether to block imports made under bad conditions, but perhaps not as extreme as the conditions in Xinjiang. And there, the debate goes something like, there's one side that says, you know, we should block all of this, this is horrible, um, race to the bottom, etc. And then there's the other side that says, okay, well, what are we trying to achieve here? What, what happens if we block these imports, and then everyone who was working in these terrible conditions loses their job, right? Isn't that going to make them worse off? Now, in the case of Xinjiang, um, I, I don't, that's not the debate that's happening. You know, at the same time, the other debate that's not happening uh, is this question of, are you trying to introduce these trade barriers to change behavior, right? So you might think in the case of Xinjiang that it's okay to block imports made with forced labor, even if it doesn't affect the fact that the forced labor is going on, right? You might think that there's just something morally abhorrent to do with this practice, and you just want nothing to do with that. In some cases, uh, an action is just going to cross the line. I think this one this one has. But in other cases, there is this question of, okay, well, what are we trying to do here, right, if the objective yeah. is really to, to improve the, the conditions of the people being affected? No, no, that, that's, that's such a great point. So I, I think that traditional debate that you just mentioned about like, well, okay, it doesn't sound pleasant that workers in a garment factory are working, I don't know, 12 to 14 hour days and they don't get long breaks or anything like that um, to make these goods that we're importing cheaply. But does it really necessarily help those workers if we raise tariffs on those goods and then those workers lose their jobs and possibly are, you know, end up in, in an even worse situation than the sort of miserable, you know, working conditions that they were in when they were in that factory. Uh, but that sort of more nuanced question of, well, like, this is a way that the trade can help. It provides demand for cheaper goods precisely because they are cheaper, which means that they are made more cheaply. And if this is part of a country's, a poor country's development process, it's possible that raising tariffs 
will make those workers even worse off, even though it's a sort of incredibly uncomfortable point to consider. But you're absolutely right. That is the debate that a lot of economists have and the policymakers have, and frankly, that they should be having, right? Like figuring out these tricky moral questions should be a part of making trade policy. And I sort of see that as a through line in your report as well, that trade doesn't exist in its own little siloed part of economic policy or even foreign policy. It is part of like these broader societal considerations. And it's probably going to stay there. That's sort of the, the takeaway I, I had as well, which is that there's no sort of going back to the to the world where, um, you know, we just want peace between countries. So we're going to lower tariff barriers and we're going to have open trade everywhere. For one thing, a lot of tariffs in those decades after the war were lowered to quite extremely low levels anyways. And so this is sort of the next phase is dealing with these issues of greater political and even moral and and ethical complexities, right? I mean, it is worth saying that you know the the general agreement on tariffs and trade, which is the the predecessor to the World Trade Organization. So this was the organization that that managed trade relations after the Second World War. That that wasn't the whole. The world wasn't in that, right? Um, that was the U.S., um, various European countries. Um, you know, China wasn't in there. The Soviet Union wasn't in there. And to an extent, that was an instrument of of pulling allies closer together. You know, integrating their economies in order to strengthen a rival to the Soviet Union, right? So, you know, there was a sense in which these geopolitical factors mattered. But it is correct to say that the direction of travel was towards this idea that trade integration is great and trade integration is complementary to our geopolitical objectives. China joined the the WTO, Russia eventually joined the the WTO, right? That was the the direction everyone was moving in, and now that has ended. Yeah, that's fascinating. The role of the Cold War and this idea that winning the Cold War was a goal that kind of superseded other goals because back then the world was obviously so divided between these two different ideological and economic systems, and so... There was a kind of logic back then to binding together all the market-oriented and liberal countries of the world, even if closer trade between those countries might have some side effects that not all of them really loved. But of course, the Cold War ended a while back and trade did continue to integrate and to grow. And so in a way, it kind of makes sense that individual countries are now turning to the specific problems that they perceive in the global trading system. And they actually have some hope that they'll end up getting their way. And they don't mind that even if it means rolling back some of that global integration, some of that interconnectedness, because there isn't any longer this one enormous like ideological foe that countries need to stand together to fight against. So it's almost like there is more geopolitical space for countries to pursue their own ends now. Yeah, I think there's a there's a dynamic in global trade where, you know, to a certain extent the theory was right, right? If you have trade integration, um, with other countries, if you pull them closer towards you, it becomes very painful to go to war with them, right? So where we are now is we've got all these very interconnected supply chains, the US economy, the Chinese economy, they are interconnected. It's proving very painful um, to disconnect those two, right? And, you know, it's, it's, 
you see the Biden administration kind of trying to to calm down things, to say we don't want a conflict, right? The, the aim is not not to have a hot war, right? And, you know, while the economies are so connected, that that is made more difficult, right? So the risk is, of all of this is that if you disconnect these economies, then it becomes easier to have fights in other dimensions. In some senses, the trade integration is protecting you from other these other conflicts. Yeah, that was for a very long time one of the key justifications, not just for global trade, but for like commerce in general, was that it had this kind of pacifying effect. So that if you had these relationships with other countries or, you know, or even between companies or whatever, that you had a lower likelihood of conflict precisely because you would be then be jeopardizing your own self-interest. You were tying together the self-interest of different countries. Does that sort of idea just increasingly come under threat in the last like five or 10 years? Are, are people more skeptical of that now? I mean, when I started this, I had the sense that the problem was that this project had been too successful, that the US and the Chinese economies were too close. Um, and actually, there were cases where people in the Department of Defense wanted a bit more distance, but they, they couldn't, right? <laughs> and so I think there is this sense that the sense of rebalancing the costs and benefits of that of that policy. Europe is more complicated. There are forces in Europe that are much more concerned about the loss of their export industries, and so that kind of almost mercantilist dynamic is is a bit stronger than it than it is in the U.S. But you know, in general, I think the if you think of government as a as a kind of balance between the economic interests and the defense interests. The, the defense-minded voices have definitely become louder. What, did, what surprised you in, uh, in putting together this report? Mm, mm, um, okay. Um, I'm going to go mega specific on you now. There was one oh, study that I thought was super interesting. Um, was by some researchers from the World Bank. Um, was looking at the impact of provisions and trade deals related to forests, right? So, you know, I go into this and the perception is that a lot of the environmental labor provisions in trade deals are fairly aspirational. They're there to kind of shut up some domestic constituents, but they're not really going to have much of an effect. And then I came across this study that showed that when trade deals have these provisions that are aimed at kind of protecting the forests, they did actually have an effect. And what you see is you see trade deals go into effect, and then you see trade deals that didn't have these forestry provisions, deforestation increases, right? Which is what you'd expect, right? Trade goes up, industry increases, production increases, they chop down all the forests to help their production. But when you have these provisions, it does actually protect those resources, right? Which is an example of where, like, actually, something in a trade deal can have a protective or a good effect. And so that was after quite a long time of cynicism about the impact that these kind of vague provisions in trade deals could have. Actually, it was a kind of a demonstration that they could, that it is possible to do these things well. That's lovely. It can work. Yeah, it can. It can work. Um, yeah, sadly, that didn't actually make it into the written report. Um, but, uh, <laughs> it is. It is there. It exists, and and I I liked reading about it. 
and it's definitely going to make it into the podcast. Uh, last question. You know, I was looking for um, a hopeful spin on the report itself, and something occurred to me, which is that the world has had in the past, within the course of the past couple of hundred years since the Industrial Revolution, a few different big waves of globalization. Not all of those waves have ended very well. Most famously, I think, you know, there was a several decade period leading up to World War I, and it ended in a huge and destructive war. And knock on wood, but it seems like in this case, the big wave of globalization that started after the Second World War and that continued on, you know, into the 2000s. And yes, you know, some of the sort of advances are being rolled back, sometimes for sort of understandable reasons, sometimes for ludicrous reasons, but it doesn't actually seem like in this case, the backlash is going to lead to some massively horrible global conflict. And that might seem like a low bar, but I personally took a little bit of hope from it, a little bit of optimism that you have these movements and sometimes they, you know, they go quite far and there's a little bit of a backlash to them. But the backlash itself, the the magnitude of the backlash itself is also something to consider. And all things considered, the magnitude of this backlash to trade doesn't seem too, too bad. Uh, That's my take, but I'm curious to get yours and just more generally how sort of whether or not the doing the report left you with a sense of hope, a sense of pessimism or, or something in between. Yeah, I think the big question is, yeah, I think you are right that, I mean, frankly, the level of, of trade integration that we have right now, it, it is just difficult to reverse, right? We have these very complex supply chains. Um, and and by the way, in 20 years, it's going to be very, very difficult to look back and work out what exactly caused what, right? We just had a pandemic. We've got these tariffs. It's all happening at the same time. It's a complete nightmare. Um, so we're, we're never going to know for certain, you know, this is what was caused by, say, a turn away from the WTO. So I think you're right. In terms of it, it doesn't match you know, the the disaster for international commerce that was the 1930s, where you had all sorts of international macroeconomic rubbish going on, definitely not as bad as that. And actually, the recovery from the pandemic is remarkably fast, right? So well done. In terms of the future of the, the global rules-based system, I think the big open question is, can we muddle through, right? So at the moment, we have this system where if there's a problem between the US and, say, the EU, we kind of have to rely on good political will um, for it not to erupt into something just quite quite bad. And the question is, how long can we sustain that? Now, the answer might be a very long time, right? Maybe countries will unite behind something, be it suspicion of China or something else. And actually, we won't see the kind of tit-for-tat disputes erupt. If you listen to the cynics, then they'll say that what's happening is a slow buildup behind the scenes, behind the border trade restrictions. So things like subsidies that are only available to domestic companies or regulatory barriers that are secretly and slowly, slowly rising. But but you're right. We just, we haven't, we haven't been in this kind of post-rules-based world for long enough to see how it will pan out. If you listen to the Biden administration, they certainly talk a good talk when it comes to working with allies, working with friends. Um, maybe it'll be okay. Um, but but it's, 
it's it's uncertain. <laughs> That's where we are. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend that you stopped at maybe it'll be okay, <laughs> just to make Great. myself feel better. <laughs> Fine, I give uh, you permission to do that. Uh, Samaya Keynes, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And that's our show for today. You can find a link to Samaya's big report for the Economist in the show notes for this episode, and we'll also post a link there to Trade Talks, which is the podcast that Samaya co-hosts with the economist Chad Bown. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and Amy Keene. Amy executive produces this podcast so that we too can benefit from the gains from trade. Sorry, a bit of Trade 101 geekery there. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks also to Adrian Lilly, our excellent sound engineer, and to the mighty Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio for the theme music. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, please leave us a review or tell a friend. Also, we love hearing from our listeners. So if you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bazaaraudio.com. That's hello at B-A-Z-A-A-R-A-U-D-I-O.com. And we'll see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.